Hey guys, gals, I'm Josh. I'm uh, one of the leaders around here. Before we get into tonight's teaching, um, I just wanted to take a moment to give you guys a bit of recommended reading. Tonight we're talking a bit about what it means to follow Jesus in uh, our kind of cultural moment, so to speak. Um, two books that have uh, shaped a lot of my thinking of, on this topic are both by a gentleman named Mark Sayers, who's an Aussie. He uh, leads a church in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, one of which is called Disappearing Church, um, From Cultural Relevance to Gospel Resilience, uh, massively formational and incredible content. And then just recently he published a new book called Strange Days, uh, Life in the Spirit in a Time of Upheaval. Um, Mark is a, a sort of cultural commentator that's incredibly astute and has uh, some really, really remarkable things to say about the time that we're in and what it means for the church. So if you're interested in going a bit deeper, I would recommend those two books. On Monday morning, uh, many awoke to nearly incomprehensible updates flooding news outlets and social media. You know, a previously unknown yet now infamous gunman rained down bullets on unsuspecting Las Vegas concertgoers for apparently more than 10 minutes, killing dozens and injuring hundreds. And I opted to describe this news as nearly incomprehensible because for Americans, mass shootings can be described as horrifically ordinary. Uh, though the United States counts for 5% of the world's population, it leads the world in gun violence and accounts for 31% of all mass shootings in the world. Uh, but of course, the world itself would feel madden maddeningly unstable even without record gun violence. Uh, many had already felt fixed to the news prior to Monday as they waited in fear for Hurricane Irma and before that, Hurricane Harvey. And before that, a never-ending parade of protest turned to violent riots and police brutality and increasingly virulent uh, hostility between the socio-political left and the right. Terrorists attacked with bombs and retribution with nerve gas and cars used as weapons, uh, violence at home, violence abroad, ISIS, white supremacy, devastation, the threat of nuclear war for some reason, despair, chaos. And this is, of course, a short list of events all accessible from recent memory. And of course, I realize the for-profit news media amplifies chaos and brings it closer to home with more frequency than with any generation in history. But even so, even with that in mind, it often feels as though the world has sort of lost its mind. Chaos reigns. And in the wake of what feels like an ever-building crescendo of global dissonance, many take to their respective pulpits, the pulpits of politicians or of preachers or of so social media personalities. And we all sort of pose the question, what's happening? Why do we yet fail to achieve peace or at least some semblance of sanity and order? So with that question in mind, if you will, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1 in the New Testament. Acts chapter 1. The question of chaos in the world is, of course, a question long posed by human beings from the dawn of recorded history. As soon as man beheld the world a chaotic place, they asked the question, when will this chaos come to an end? In fact, the meta-narrative of the scriptures, that is, the, the overarching story of the Bible, is about that very thing. Of course, the story begins beautifully. The benevolent creator God brings life and order out of chaos, creating a beautiful place in which he installs human beings to partner with him in realizing the beautiful potential of creation. 
And of course, many of you know the story well. Human beings reject God as their king. They decide instead to rule over themselves, and consequently, evil begins to tear the world apart. And the rest of the story is about what God plans to do in order to set things right once again. But God refuses to abandon his desire to collaborate with humanity. God selects a people, Israel, to become the means by which he will go about the redemptive work of fixing the world. And again, if you know the story, Israel fails in her calling time and time again until her sin is so great she suffers the consequences of her rebellion and the people of Israel are overtaken by the invading pagan empire of Babylon the Old Testament concludes as a story in search of an ending, and then the New Testament opens on this figure called Jesus of Nazareth. And as the story unfolds, we, the reader, as well as those around Jesus, begin to discover with varying degrees of clarity that Jesus is God's great conclusive plan to rescue the world. Only the plan seems to defy every expectation. Israel had anticipated a great military leader that would overthrow the oppressive pagans, restore Israel to glory, and usher in the kingdom of God. Bye-bye, chaos. But instead, Jesus of Nazareth, a peasant rabbi, rabbi with divisive teachings and a radical way of life, is executed by the state as a common criminal. But God, in the story, raises Jesus from the dead, conquering death itself and acting as the first fruits of God's promise for an inevitable end to all death, all suffering, all evil, and all chaos once and for all. So Acts chapter 1, the book to which we now draw our attention, begins with Jesus' disciples having witnessed Jesus' death and resurrection and wondering, okay, so what happens now? Let's read Acts chapter 1, beginning with the first verse. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So in context, Acts was authored by the same gentleman responsible for the Gospel of Luke. He goes on, verse 2, until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, which I guess is one of those convincing proofs that he was alive, um, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gifts my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is talking about a, a unique event in human history in which the Holy Spirit is finally poured out on all of humanity, something that was foretold all the way back in the Old Testament. So think about this. These disciples of Jesus have beheld miracles, they've seen the sick healed, they've witnessed prophecies fulfilled, and now they've seen a man who was dead, they saw him die, come back to life. They've just learned that the Spirit is about to pour, be poured out on all people. They recognize that Jesus is God's chosen King, and He has come to set the world to rights. And so, they ask a very understandable question. Verse 6, they gathered around Him and asked Him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, is this it? Is this the end of the chaos, the moment humanity has awaited since they left the garden? And the question is, again, a really valid one. After all, Jesus is back from the dead. He's declaring that the promises of Scripture are coming to fruition in and through him. And his disciples, we know from the story, believe this. But they must have noticed this is weird. Uh, the oppressive pagan Roman Empire still rules over Israel. That's strange. Jesus is saying that this is it, 
But the ones who beat and abuse us, who tax us into debt, debt slavery, who mock our God and our way of life, they still rule over our people. The world is still chaotic. If this is it, what gives? But, you know, in context, this is the very beginning of a movement. So maybe things change. Jesus' disciples are about to get the Holy Spirit, and they're about to spread out beyond Jerusalem. So turn over just a couple of books to the letter we call 1 Corinthians. It goes Acts, Romans, and 1 Corinthians, if that's helpful. Or if you know you're on your phone, just push the button. Uh, the church has begun to spread out across the ancient Mediterranean, now built from not only Jewish, but also Gentile disciples of Jesus of Nazareth. In 1 Corinthians, one master apprentice of Jesus called Paul writes a letter to a church in the Greco-Roman city of Corinth. So let's look down at chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. Paul writes, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await for our Lord Jesus the Messiah to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So things are going well, as Jesus said they would. The church is growing. The disciples are moving throughout the ancient Near East. The Spirit is being poured out. Uh, more disciples are coming to faith all the time. Keep reading. Verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. Okay, so it's not perfect then, but not so bad, maybe. Turn over to chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. When you get there, let's read beginning in verse 1. It's actually reported that there is a sexual immorality among you and a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you're proud. Shouldn't you have rather gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this? What? This is the community of the Spirit. Rome is still in charge, and now the paganism and the immorality of the pagan world has seeped into even the church of Jesus. Turn over to 1 Peter. It's near the end of the Bible. It's a small little letter, so feel free to consult the table of contents. No one will judge you. Or again, if you're on your phone, push the button. Uh, this letter was drafted to a different group of disciples as the church grew and spread. Um, so maybe from their perspective, things are going better. When you get to 1 Peter, let's look at chapter 4 and read beginning in verse 12. He writes, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. What? Now it's not just quarrels and sexual debauchery within the church, but persecution from outside the church has led to the suffering of these disciples of Jesus. And apparently this should come as no surprise, the author says. This is a theme that carries on to the very end of the story of the Bible. One more time, I promise, turn to the book of Revelation. It's an easy one because it's the last book in the whole Bible. Revelation chapter 14. 
Now, a a bit of quick context. Revelation was authored in the midst of a particularly chaotic epoch in the history of what was first called the way and what we now call the church. Um, In 64 AD, this destructive fire ravaged the Roman Empire, and Emperor Nero, who was the ruler at the time, was rumored to have ordered the fire himself. And the historian Tacitus wrote that Nero shifted blame to a movement called the Way, that is, the early disciples of Jesus. He wrote, to get rid of the report that Nero himself started the fire, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians. As a result, disciples of Jesus throughout the Roman Empire became the focus of horrifically violent persecution. Nero was even said to have his courts lit by Christians that he burned alive. Uh, Here's a painting called The Torches of Nero. You can see uh, what looks like a happening party, and on the right over there, they are preparing to burn Christians alive as the sun goes down. This is but one of Nero's historically documented methods of torturing Christians. And during this, a disciple of Jesus called John had been exiled to an island called Patmos where he receives a vision that he documents in what we call the book of Revelation. To speak of the specific socio-political climate of the time, John opted to use a code, which was an ancient literary genre called apocalyptic, for which we have no modern equivalent whatsoever. And in this coded, bizarre, cryptic letter, he encourages these hunted and tortured disciples of Jesus to remain faithful and not give up. Let's read Revelation chapter 14, beginning in verse 12. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit, they will rest from their labor for their deeds will follow them. What? We've now arrived at the conclusion of the New Testament And the question posed by the disciples to the resurrected Jesus, when will you bring the kingdom in full, is yet unanswered. So the Old Testament concludes with the persecuted people of God steeped in chaos, awaiting the coming king. And the New Testament reveals the king. It documents his decisive victory over the evil one. It reveals glimpses of the kingdom. And yet concludes with the people of God steeped in chaos, awaiting the returning king, and the coming kingdom revealed in full once and for all. And the world has, of course, known great chaos since then. Uh, The Dark Ages, the Black Plague, the Crusades, American slavery, the Holocaust, the, the Cambodian and Armenian and Rwandan genocides, just to name a few. War after war after world war, worldwide war, nuclear war, Christians killing Christians, non-Christians killing non-Christians, civilian populations in schools and hospitals slaughtered by drone strikes, a a never-ending parade of Protests turned to violent riots, police brutality, the oscillating hostility between the socio-political left and the right, terrorist attacks with planes and bombs and retribution with nerve gas and cars used as weapons and mass shootings so frequent, our ability to experience shock and revulsion and grief has been hopelessly fatigued. But all of this is actually not new. In fact, the designation of the recent Las Vegas shooting as the deadliest in U.S. history is actually a a misnomer, though the current total puts the death toll in Las Vegas at a devastating 58. 
Up to 150 African Americans were shot and killed by a white mob in the Colfax Massacre of 1873. Uh, Shortly thereafter, 300 Native American men, women, and children were shot and killed by U.S. soldiers in the Wounded Knee Massacre of 1890. Uh, If one enters into the unpleasant work of actually quantifying the world's violence and political vitriol and sexual deviancy, one would likely behold, rather than a gradual decline, which is what we'd like to believe, or a cataclysmic crescendo, which is what it feels like at times, we'd likely see a surprising system of peaks and valleys. The for-profit news media feeding on our fear, you know, like Monsters Incorporated, It presents us with an unending barrage of horrors, but as far back as Genesis, God himself deduced that the entire world had become overrun with evil. To live in the Pacific Northwest, for example, with its record-breaking strip clubs per capita and sex trafficking rings, feels like an all-time low in human purity. But what of the Roman Empire in the first century with temple prostitutes and religious orgies and political leaders who doubled as open pedophiles? According to the scriptures, the world has always been a chaotic place. The patterns undulate, but chaos to some degree reigns. And this is why the New Testament describes the devil, the great antagonist of God, as the prince and even the god of this age. And here we are, disciples of Jesus. We have come to believe in his victory. We have seen glimpses of the coming kingdom, but we are yet steeped in chaos, awaiting the returning king and the coming kingdom revealed in full. And this is not to say that every cultural moment is essentially the same, because, of course, they are not. In fact, historians and cultural observers note that our cultural climate here in the Western world is in many ways unique in human history. In our current cultural moment, feelings have replaced facts. Uh, In the ongoing war waged over, you know, terms like fake news or adversely alternative facts or both sides of the polarized spectrum have created a sort of padded room for their peers in which you become the authority and if an idea is offensive or scary, you can provide for yourself an alternative with any numbers of celebrities or social media pseudo-celebrities to further support your already closed mind on any given topic. And by curating, curating the information that you intake or you know, overload, choosing your news sources, who you follow online, which blogs or publications you browse and follow, you inevitably heard the already like-minded. And consequently, what we learn about the world and those around us arrives deliberately filtered through lenses of our own selection, that we might avoid the risk of encountering those who legitimately think differently, perhaps on occasion with good reason, or else learning to disagree with thoughtfulness and maturity. And in the endless parade of divisive cultural moments, uh, I'll often witness the sort of consistent social media mentality that insists that everyone should be speaking up on any given thing lest they risk complicity with whoever the villain of the moment may be. But in my experience, most of the folks who are speaking up do so in an echo chamber of like-minded peers, uh, eagerly anticipating the inevitable pat on the back through likes or retweets or whatever it might be. And if ideas do interact with anyone who disagrees, they, they tend to immediately rebound off the thick skull of a closed mind. Because it doesn't matter how big the platform or how loud the microphone, you cannot steer the unwilling, especially with vitriol. 
And this carries over into the culture of the church in, in that with enough blogs or Twitter feeds or personalities, you can always find someone to pat you on the head and promise, no, you don't really have to deny yourself. That's just all those mean religious people talking. We have an alternative version for you to believe over here. And as a result of globalization, the world keeps getting smaller. We, we are becoming increasingly without place, meaning there was a time in the not-so-distant past in which to live in a certain place carried a much heavier signature on one's life because your access to ideas or, say, art or fashion or people were limited to your sphere of life. But now we carry on much of our lives in the non-place of the digital world. Uh, I, I've never had Facebook personally, and one of the reasons is because, honestly, I, I've never heard anyone say anything good about it. Uh, and even amongst its most regular users, people that are on it all the time, Facebook itself, in the cultural vernacular, seems to be something of a joke, you know, a, a place for your grandma to post her inspirational quotes or conservative news updates or whatever it might be, and your weird aunt to, like, post minion memes or something like that. And yet, so many go on using the thing. And that's not to pick on you if you use Facebook. It's perfectly fine. But so often when I hear someone lamenting the alleged lameness of Facebook, then I'll, you know, just say, well, you know, get rid of it. To which they almost always reply, but, you know, it's the only way I have to keep in touch with some people. So let me be the bearer of some bad news. Um, social media is not staying in touch with someone. It's just not. You are privy to a curated proxy of some person, and in most cases, your proxy doesn't even interact with that proxy in any meaningful way, ever. Uh, perhaps you say to yourself, well, not me, or not so-and-so, but yes, you, and yes, so-and-so. The online version of any human being is, by design, uh, a caricature, regardless of your motivations or your intent. And I'm not saying that you do so deviously or that you're bad for having social media, but you just can't put all of a person in an online profile. It's not necessarily a scandalous thing, it just is. And the digital non-place of social media has created for us the illusion of connectedness without the work and sacrifice of actually being connected to anyone, making us entirely unprepared and immature for actual human relationships because you don't have to pay any relational sacrifice for online connectedness. You don't walk or hurt with someone in the messiness of life through, you know, Facebook or Instagram or what have you. You just tap images or you leave flippant little one-liners, polishing the brass on the Titanic, essentially. It's all going down. Um, because you can't be connected to everyone, realistically. It isn't healthy. You shouldn't be. In fact, you can't even maintain meaningful emotional connectedness with many people, let alone a barrage, a, a mob of people. But social media sustains the toxic lie that you can be connected to everyone, and the price for believing that myth is that you become less connected to anyone. Social media is essentially the McDonald's of relationships. You know, it's like the multi-billion dollar industry. Uh, everyone uses it, or lots of people use it, but it's actually pretty gross, and it kills you and the world. <laughs> Too much? Uh, and, and, and we live and breathe in the false non-places of the digital world. We insulate ourselves from the actual human connectedness consuming only safe, comfortable little ideas with which we already agree. We set ourselves up to shatter in the cold of the real world. 
because we're, we're actually facing what seems to be an epidemic of cultural fragility in which we're no longer able to grapple with people and content that, that offends or upsets us, but insist that we must be protected from any and all ideas that diverge from ours at all times, lest we shatter to pieces. And again, this bleeds into the fabric of the church with legions of young people who stumble along the narrow way of Jesus, completely bludgeoned by the earth-shattering notion that they might be asked to die to themselves in the language of the scriptures, to work against their impulses and wiring or to sacrifice. And all of these digital ramifications would be staggering enough. And we've yet to broach the topic of digital addiction. The smartphone seems to be something of like the cigarette of a new generation. It's seemingly innocuous, cool, and enjoyable product whose lethal cancerous effects are slowly becoming increasingly evident the more research is conducted, but only after the addictive damage has been done. Uh, the September issue of The Atlantic featured this incredible essay by Jean M. Twenge, a professor of psychology at San Diego State University. Her essay, titled Have Smartphones Destroyed a Generation, tracks extensive research on the toll smartphones are taking, in particular on the lives of post-millennials, young people. And to look at the extensively documented data, you can see, uh, actually graphed, I encourage you to go check it out, Have Smartphones Destroyed a Generation. You can see, charted on a graph, the arrival of the iPhone in uh, 2007, I believe, immediately preceding a shockingly steep drop in the mental health and relational connectedness and ambition and happiness and overall well-being of young people. On this research, she wrote this. The results could not be clearer. Teens who spend more time than average on screen activities are more likely to be unhappy, and those who spend more time than average on non-screen activities are more likely to be happy. There's not a single exception. All screen activities are linked to less happiness, and all non-screen activities are linked to more happiness. When teens spend more time on smartphones and less time on in-person social interactions, loneliness is more common, so is depression. Once again, the effect of screen activities is unmistakable. The more time teens spend looking at screens, the more likely they are to report symptoms of depression. Now, of course, I realize that the, the issue of the smartphone is one with which we all have a certain amount of familiarity and, dare I say, complicity. I have one. I'm sure a lot of you guys have one. But when, when's the last time that you actually took a look at the world around you with this in mind? Uh, a couple of weeks ago, Abby and I went on vacation together, and the week before that, Abby was traveling, my wife Abby was traveling by herself, so I took uh, my son back to the coast. And on both of those trips... Um, I made a conscious decision internally to avoid using my phone as much as possible to enjoy myself uh, it, with the exception of like directions while I was driving or something like that. And naturally, you know, you find yourself just looking around a lot. Um, in virtually every setting that I found myself, I was more often than not the only person just sitting there looking around, which is a really bizarre feeling. Uh, restaurants full of families, the beach, a tropical resort. Uh, dozens of people on vacation or on dates or out to dinner or family time, men and women and children, all of them with their faces buried in screens at all times. Uh, in fact, at one time, uh, at one point, Abby and I had a long layover and I was just, you know, sitting there twiddling my thumbs in this packed terminal. And I like kind of nudged her and said, look at this, look around. And every single person, this is not an exaggeration, I actually looked for a long time, every single human being was like this, except for a few elderly people who had fallen asleep. Uh, I was jealous of them. And uh, they were all looking at their phones or their tablets or whatever it might be. 
Writer Andrew Sullivan observed the same thing. Just look around you at the people crouched over their phones as they walk the streets or drive their cars or walk their dogs or play with their children. Observe yourself in a line for coffee or in a quick work break or driving or even just going to the bathroom. Visit an airport and see the sea of crane necks and dead eyes. We have gone from looking up and around to constantly looking down. If an alien had visited America just five years ago, then returned today, wouldn't this be its immediate observation? That this species has developed an extraordinary new habit, and everywhere you look lives constantly in its thrall. Like a, a rat in a lab, you know, like a helpless test subject made to sit before a screen, all a clockwork orange, eyes pried open with the cruel speculum, you are being trained at all times to believe that you can be anything and do anything, because if you aren't, what's wrong with you? Someone you know, some ordinary peer of yours, is leading an incredible life. Their house is nicer, their kids have cooler clothes, their vacations are more lovely, they get out in nature and go on hikes, they have all kinds of nice, neat little garbage and their nice, neat little houses. But listen, you can't be anything. Not really. That person is a, a lie. They are an avatar, a proxy. The actual person behind the imagery and the curation and the platitudes and everything else is inside a scrambling, desperate, afraid person just like you and I. And they can't be anything they'd like to be either. And when you swim in a sea of achievement celebration and, and the whitewashed veneer of a pretty little life on Instagram or Facebook or whatever, Limitations become replaced with endless possibilities of everything your life can and should be, and you will always be disappointed because possibilities are indeed limited. And what's more, the way of Jesus begins to grate against you because rather than celebrating the endless possibilities of a be and do anything achievement culture, the way of Jesus offers limitations. There are things that you can and cannot do. And you must learn to deny and discipline yourself. Mark Sayers puts it like this. The intensification of radical individualism created by our digital age in which individuals fold into themselves as they bend over the screen of their smartphone means that the life of, a dis of discipleship and the battle against the flesh is a battle against the self. All who come to Christ must lay their lives down before Christ, regardless of the particularities of the epic and culture they find themselves in. Our age is no different, but our phones train us not to do this. Digital non-places and digital addiction and endless chaos delivered to our screens via the news media, the, the widening chasm of hostility between the right and the left, increasingly uncommitted, immature, and fragile generation... If this is our cultural moment, if the world will always know some level of chaotic ebb and flow until Jesus makes everything new, then what do we do now? Not just we, as in we disciples of Jesus, but we as in this particular family, we as in Van City Church, what do we do now? To end tonight, I want to propose three paths forward, and it's actually relatively simple. Faithfulness, discipline, and the quiet revolution. So first, faithfulness. In his book, Strange Days, again, Mark Sayers writes this. The commitment that church requires bites deep into a dangerous freedom. 
And our contemporary culture is set around the needs of the individual in which we pick and choose where to spend our time at our leisure. We're formed as consumers. We give but expect in return. The social architecture of the church reorients us away from a fleshly obsession on self. To be a truly redemptive force, a church needs the commitment of its individual members, those who shape their lives around its rhythms and calendar, who restrict their options and choose instead to serve the bride of Christ. The small commitment of regular attendance grows into the commitment of loving brothers and sisters in Christ, which blossoms into the service of those outside the church, love of the neighbor and sharing of good news and seeking of mercy and justice. To say that ours is a commitment-phobic culture uh, so understates the issue that it borders on comedy. In a world of fragile non-places in which the mere suggestion that one might do other than they feel is cultural blasphemy. The great rebellion of the church in this case is to show up, to commit to one another when we feel like doing it and when we do not. And here's why, uh, because it isn't easy and it asks something of you. Believe it or not, despite a very rocky past with the church, I actually love her deeply. I, I, I believe in her with my whole heart. And I actually enjoy going to church, believe it or not. I have for a number of years now, but not always. Even the task of simply showing up on occasion, like all of you guys, requires a little battle against myself from time to time, let alone serving and sacrificing and walking alongside other messy people with my own messiness. And in a world where culture pats your precious head and tells you, here, have a phone, don't do anything that doesn't feel right for you, the people of God say to one another, well, we'll be here. We will be faithful to the bride of Christ despite the undulating and unpredictable waves of emotion, despite how we feel. Because like any relationship, it costs something. And frankly, I, I just have no interest personally in hosting or being a part of a never-ending rotation of characters who pop in on occasion when they like the band or the teacher or the snacks or their home church wasn't quite on point earlier that morning. Or I, I want to actually be a part of a community that becomes a family together over time. And to show up to do this, we will need to learn discipline. Uh, novelist Frank Herbert writes this in the sixth installment of his Dune anthology. Seek freedom and become captive of your desires. Seek discipline and find your liberty. In our hyper-individualistic, you-can-and-should-do-anything culture, discipline's not just an alien concept, it's a dangerous concept. Because though the New Testament speaks at great length about the need for discipline in the life of a disciple, our culture recognizes it for what it is, a form of self-denial. And listen, that's because it is. Apprenticing Jesus is about the constant and ongoing work of destroying what the New Testament calls the flesh. All of your desire and wiring that is out of alignment with the way of Jesus. And for some, this will mean the denial of, say, certain sexual desires or dietary choices or relational endeavors or career paths or shopping decisions. The disciple of Jesus is always putting the flesh to death. And the flesh isn't the only subject of continual death. Every day, we face the repeated surfacing of desires that are not inherently sinful, per se, but that nevertheless interfere with or contradict the specificity of Jesus' direction on your life in particular. 
Apprenticing Jesus involves the ongoing death of desire that is out of alignment with the way of Jesus, that it might be substituted with new and better desires that are often completely beyond you and your capability, and that's where the Holy Spirit comes in. Dallas Willard says it like this, self-denial is the overall settled condition of life in the kingdom of God, better described as death to self. In this, and this alone, lies the key to the soul's restoration. Christian spiritual formation rests on this indispensable foundation of death to self and cannot proceed except insofar as that foundation is being firmly laid and sustained. And so at Van City, we set the bar very high. Cam was up here last week talking about the way that he's had conversations with other church leaders in the city and in the area um, and, and trying to describe to them the way that we orient our communities and hearing from a number of leaders, I think he said that like, oh, well, good grief, the, the level of buy-in is so high, we'll never convince anyone to, to do anything that requires so much commitment. And there's a reason that we do that. We, we want faithfulness from one another uh, in our Van City communities and as a greater church family. We get together week in and week out to eat together and to learn and to sing and take communion and practice the spiritual disciplines together. We've designed our rhythms around apprenticing Jesus together, learning and growing in spiritual disciplines and rhythms of shared life. We hold one another accountable. We walk and wrestle and struggle together and we persist in inviting one another to a standard that confounds the world around us, to disobey ourselves that we might obey Jesus. And when the church learns steadfast faithfulness and discipline and self-denial, it actually lives itself out in a quiet life. Uh, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul, master apprentice of Jesus, writes to a group of persecuted disciples of Jesus who are themselves steeped in chaos, and he says just that, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. When we learn to settle into ordinary rhythms of rebellion against the status quo, it begins to take shape in the eyes of the host culture around us, but it isn't loud or angry or violent. One writer I read this week said it like this, all the statistical evidence goes to show that those within our secularized societies who are being drawn out of unbelief to faith in Christ say that they were drawn through the friendship of the local congregation. My prayer is for an ordinary group of men and women and kids from all manner of backgrounds and walks of life, learning what it means to practice the way of Jesus together. And when we do, it will be a beautiful, remarkable thing, but also quiet and unpretentious. That we would embrace a lifestyle of disobeying ourselves when the way of Jesus requires us to do so. So let us step away with increasing thoughtfulness from the non-places of the digital world, setting both feet firmly in the actual world of our families and our friends and our communities. I'm not saying you have to like destroy your smartphones. It's probably a good idea, but um, you don't have to or anything like that. But, you know, there are other things that you can do. You can make your smartphone a, a dumb phone by, you know, removing every app that entrances you and then locking yourself out of the app store. Um, I, I did it. It's really helpful. I recommend it to everyone. Uh, I, need, I do need the, the GPS. There's some technology that's still beneficial. I, I couldn't find my way out of this building, uh, uh, honestly. It's a huge problem in my brain. Um, 
Or you can do other stuff. You can ask your community or your spouse or your roommate, whoever it is, to like kind of set up a plan that limits screen time and hold one another accountable to it. Abby and I, we set entire time frames of the day, you know, from uh, 6 p.m. to after the kids are in bed, no phones whatsoever. They're in a drawer or whatever it might be. Uh, one Van City community that I know puts all their phones into a box at the beginning of their time together. And they don't retrieve them until the evening comes to an end because they got sick of looking around and seeing everyone doing this while they were trying to spend time together. Uh, so make deliberate strides, not just thoughtful, yeah, that sounds good, we should probably do that and then do nothing. Make thoughtful steps in the direction of actually living in the real world and with the community around you. And then I would even argue it's, it's beneficial to spend time with people who think differently or at least expose yourself to ideas that are different from your own, read and think outside of your own theological camp, your own socio-political camp, listen to people, even frustrating people, so that you may learn to disagree well and learn what a thoughtful, Jesus-centric response is to people who think differently than you, um, so that we can break the cycle of angry vitriol that gets us nowhere. Um, we need to embrace discipline. We need to take on the practices of Jesus together in community, which is why we orient our Van City communities around the spiritual disciplines. We need to actually show up to church and not just show up to fill a seat, but to contribute and to pitch in and to be a part of the family in ways big or small that um, work in your season of life. We get that everyone's in different seasons of life. But when I dream of this and when I think of the promise of Jesus himself, Something that was echoing in my mind as I wrote this teaching is that in all the chaos to come, Jesus said that the church would actually carry on. He, in his words, his wonderful punk rock words, he said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Even if the revolution turns out to be this quiet sort of thing. So I'd like to end this year's vision series for Van City with this prayer uh, for us, for our church, which is from the final words of John's revelation that we read from earlier. John writing to a church steeped in chaos who are awaiting the coming kingdom but living in the now and the not yet. John writes this. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Let's pray together and invite the Spirit to come and speak over us.